Hello and welcome to another mining podcast with me, Paul Harris, and Joe Mazumdar of Explosion Insights. Hi, Joe. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Happy very holidays. Well. Thank you very much. This is issue number 10 of another mining podcast. It's just uh, a couple of weeks before Christmas, so in many ways it's our Christmas edition. And we have uh, quite a surprise package uh, of presents in the bag to discuss today. <laughs> We're going to be covering uh, mine development, uh, mine development issues, M&A, and all interesting things like that with a very specific focus on Canada. Um, the provocative, I guess, headline or, or topic today um, that we're going to be discussing is why Canada, is Canada such a sought-after jurisdiction in M&A terms and things of that nature, when it seems no one today can build a gold mine that works. Uh, we've seen <laughs> development issues over the recent years with Rainy River, with Hope Bay, with Pure Gold, and now, just this week, Magino, Argonaut Resources, reporting a massive uh, cost overrun uh, planned or, or that's going to come down at Magino in Ontario. What's going on? So, I mean, that's a lot to take in. Uh, I, I would say that, uh, you know, uh, feasibility studies uh, have uh, the, the amount of engineering that are done in them. Uh, and then when you get to reality and start building them, uh, there, there seems to be a dichotomy between what you thought theoretically would work and what you actually have. Um, like if we go back to TMAC, what, what Newmont wanted to build, which was a much higher capital and a, a, a more established processing plant. The junior company wanted to you know, skinny the upfront capital by putting modular uh, processing plants that were tested, I believe in Australia, that did not work. This is in, Hope uh, Bay, yeah. This is Hope Bay, yeah. And so that, that had its own issue, uh, which gave it working capital issues, which you know forced a take under almost by Agnico. Uh, with, uh, with the other one you're talking about, Rainy River, the problem with a lot of these open pit ones uh, in Northern Ontario, they tend to be low grade. So there's not a lot of flexibility to make up for uh, cost overruns, uh, which was the same problem with Rainy River. If, if we go on to uh, like, then we had issues with Pure Gold and that was an underground mine in the Red Lake area uh, where they put out a feasibility study, got funding for it, and then basically changed scope because uh, they didn't have enough faces and flexibility to to get the grade that they wanted to get into uh, with respect to the feasibility plan that they, they were looking to get eight grams and they were getting more like two or three. Um, now what we have with uh, Magino, which is Argonauts project, uh, that original feasibility study was done in November, 2017. And I believe, you know, the, the uh, capital in Canadian was around 410 million. And now fast forward to they've done some development work, earthworks and that, uh, and also looked at power. And now they're saying that the number is 800 million, which is uh, you know almost twice as much as the original feasibility study, which was you know, what they would use to get funded. Yeah, I mean, that, that's quite, a, quite an overshoot. And uh, you know, a lot of companies have been talking about cost inflation, but as you say, there's the changing of scope and having to do things that weren't envisaged at the feasibility study level adds on additional costs. And that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, Argonaut share price has suffered considerably over the last few days, and it's potentially going to suffer more because uh, obviously they've got to go out and raise a ton more money uh, to, to contemplate and to execute the things, the additional things they now need to do. 
Well, they're saying that liquidity-wise that they're okay in terms of accessing the capital, which is probably what they want to tell the the, uh, the market, that it's not so bad and we're not going to raise equity. We, we've got a revolving credit facility we can tap and we've got enough working capital. So that's what they're trying to tell the market right now is that we have that they have enough uh, capital to uh, you know bridge the gap the problem is when it's a junior like a pure gold or a t-mac or somebody like that that's trying to build the project and then runs out of money then the market knows that they're going to go back to the equity markets and hence the plunge the the problem right now i think for uh argonaut is not only are they taking a hit in scope and how they build projects and so that that uh, you know, uh, lack of confidence in management, which forced, you know, the uh, the CEO and founder of the company to basically resign, uh, is a big deal because now that same sort of uh, you know perspective or perception, let's say, of incompetence is now being, you know, put over any other development project or any of their operations right now because they feel like, hey, you were originally a small open pit heap leach producer of precious metals in Mexico. Now you're trying to build something very large, which is a big part of your reserves, a big part of your growth in terms of inferred resources, and you don't seem to be able to do it. Well, I think that's an interesting thing because Argonaut grew, you know, they, they bought um, Alio and uh, they bought assets in Nevada, which again, open pit heat leach, very similar to what their um, the core strength is, but then they've stretched going to something very different in a very different jurisdiction um, and, and they've tripped up. Yeah, and, and the thing is that uh, some of it was engineering, like, like what they said on the call was, you know, when they were doing the earthworks, got underneath the glacial till, then they found the bedrock to be more undulating and such that that required more work to put the processing plant on top. Uh, they are pre-stripping um, the, uh, the open pit. Uh, and, and then they, they've got, I think, a, a $50 million delta in the tailings management facility. And any reductions in capital that they were discussing didn't go away. They just put it in sustaining. So it's, it's not like we're, we're seeing, oh, hey, we got a gain here. We got a you know, positive here, you know, uh, then a negative here. It's, it's, it's more like, OK, let's take that money out and stick in sustaining so the upfront looks a bit lower. The other issue, which is interesting, is that, you know, we talk about Northern Ontario power, hydropower, access to power, and what, and, you know, they're right beside Richmond's, uh, oh, sorry, not Richmond, uh, now, now Alamos's uh, island mine, which is an underground mine that's right next door to them. Um, and they have access to grid power, and these guys were thinking that they could get access to grid power by upgrading the line, and, uh, but, but it turns out permitting it and the amount of money uh, that they would have to spend, it makes more sense economically and, and time-wise for them to actually put in an LNG plant and produce their own power at a higher operating cost uh, because uh, you know permitting the, uh, the grid power is just not gonna come in time and it's gonna be more expensive than they thought, which is, which is interesting because this is all pretty well news considering how long they've had to, to notice this. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the very wonderful and famous Mike Tyson uh, quotation that everybody's got to plan until they get punched in the face. And it seems <laughs> mining, um, you know, you have your feasibility study and then 
you certainly you can get punched in the face. So, um, you know, with, through the Exploration Insights newsletter, you obviously uh, identify stocks that are worthy of investing in. Is, is one of the potentially the messages here that, that one of the key times or moments to sell a junior uh, developer is the moment they've raised money to build a mine, then just get out because sure as night follows day, there's going to be a punch coming to their plans, a punch to the face coming to their plans as they seek to actually build a mine. Yeah, the thing is that, you know, with development, you really got to pick the people, like uh, who are the engineers that are actually going to work the project. And and you can have some development stage companies that are looking to get the best looking technical report or economic study on their project as a like when you're selling a house, you know, you dress it up for the for the people that would uh, that would actually, uh, you know, be attracted to it. Or what you do is you build it the way you think it's functional, and you'll actually live there yourself. And that might be two different plans. And so you got to look at the feasibility and the people that are actually producing the feasibility study. And is this a feasibility study that's actually feasible, and actually is something somebody would build or is it something that just gets them the IRR that attracts somebody to look at it um, you know that might be the case for a lot of juniors that uh, don't uh, that are non-cash flowing and want to get taken out but for Argonaut I would think that uh, you know this this would not be what they would have done with their feasibility study they, they shouldn't have wanted a feasibility study that told them that you know that this is not going to work and, and I think you pointed out before that they had a bigger plan of 30,000 ton per day that they might have wanted to joint venture with somebody because the capital was, was almost the capital that they're estimating right now because the original capital was around 400, 410 at November 2017, but for a 10,000 ton per day plan. But the 30,000, you know, I'm not sure, maybe that was around 800. I mean, is there an element um, playing devil's advocate here? As you mentioned, the feasibility was 2017. Back in 2017, this was before Argonaut had bought Alia, before it got the Nevada assets. It was a much, much smaller uh, company then. So uh, is there an element that that 2017 with its 10,000 ton a day and 30,000 ton a day scenarios could have been, let's say, perhaps more of a marketing document to try and entice a partner in uh, rather than, hey, this is our plan for what we want to do ourselves? Uh, it could have been because the thing is that uh, that 410 number kept creeping up to the 510 number that they're now comparing it to because uh, the 510 number, Canadian 510 million number, isn't the number from the feasibility in November 2017. They were changing that over uh, 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 between the 2017 number to when they got closer to build it, when they uh, you know secured, I believe it was, $50 million in unsecured convertible, and also another, I think it was $150 million odd in, uh, in a revolving credit facility. So by the time they thought about where they're going to get the money, that number in terms of upfront capital had already gone from 400, 410 million Canadian to 510. As they got to building it, now it's 800 million, and now they're putting out a new feasibility study. Uh, but you know, then in terms back to your question, in terms of the junior, uh, you could still get a junior that knows what they're doing and could potentially do a better job than Argonaut uh, uh, because that's what they built. Because if you look at the background of the individuals that are building, it's all oh, this is their experience. This is what they know. This is what they're good at. And, and that's really 
the minutia sometimes that you got to look at, you know, uh, uh, are do those individuals that are in charge of actually driving the project to development, do they know what they're doing? Are they, and is that company staffed up with those kind of people? Or do they just have somebody they took out of retirement that's overseeing a technical report? That's almost like a for sale document, but underneath it, they have no intention of building the project. Uh, hence, they're not overseeing what the technical report is saying and saying, you know what, that's not gonna work. You, we need to do more work here. You don't have enough capital for this and blah, 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 blah. The other guy would say, well, you know, don't put that capital in because that'll reduce my IRR below 20%. And I don't want that. Uh, I think a point that uh, really illustrates that you can look at a company like Lundin Gold, uh, which got all the backing and access to capital and expertise of the Lundin Group, and it brought food and naughty into production. It's ramped it up well. And now uh, just this week, it's uh, announced its initial or inaugural three-year production guidance. Uh, so it had the had the capital, it had the intellectual capacity, it had the technical ability to to do things without the possibility, without errors or, or mistakes or or the unknown coming in and having a big impact. Yeah, I would like I, I own shares of Bluestone, and you know I'm the the capital number. People might have been you know with with the uh, with the open pit might have been a bit whoa, that's a pretty high number for a non cash flowing junior uh, company, but you like you know, is it, it's backed by the Lundin Group. And, um, you know, they had just built Fruta del Norte several years ago. So they have this uh, experience of building in these kinds of environments. And I don't think access to capital will be an issue. So they are very concerned about whether they have a feasibility study that's actually feasible, because that's the number that they're going to use. They're not concerned if, oh, that's not the number we want, because uh, the market's not going to like that number. It's the number that they are looking for that's feasible, that's going to work, and that they can achieve, which is a different number than some, you know, for sale documents that are technical reports. Uh, and you notice with 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 the Lundin Group is is uh, is a uh, you know the former management team had had a different engineering group do this original study. And when when the the Lundin group started owning shares and uh, you know and, and Jack Lundin became the uh, CEO, they you know they had already switched the engineering company that was doing the study, you know, uh, and, you know to make sure. And those were the people that helped them build Fruta del Norte. And so really, that's that's the sort of nuance that you got to look at when you see well, what is the you know what do they actually want to do? And from everything I can see, Bluestone wants to build it. Okay, well, well, let's move on. Um, the, the, this has a, an interesting M&A angle, uh, a couple of different facets to that. A number of the companies we've talked about, uh, the developers of these projects, generally either hope that a, a buyout would come their way once the asset was built, or that it would be the start for them to build their own empire. Clearly, that's not necessarily happening that way anytime soon. Um, but a, a key M&A angle to to, I, I want to focus on is this, uh, it perhaps underscores why many recent transactions have been for built and therefore de-risked assets. And here we're talking about Brewstrack, Red Chris, Red Lake, Moose River. Um, the common denominator there is that in addition to being developed assets or close to finished development assets, the acquirers were all Australian companies. So are Australians better at managing risk? Uh, another example perhaps is Northern Star getting exposure to Cisco Mining's pre-development windfall although through a convertible debenture rather than um, a direct takeout or, or buying equity. Uh, what's your thought there? 
Well, yeah, I, I think the, the issue for a lot of Australians, uh, I would say specifically Newcrest, is their ability to expand in their sandbox, which would be uh, Asia, and uh, Australasia was getting more limited as uh, you know they were taking on more geopolitical risk in these other jurisdictions, and then they they basically decided that you know let's commit to the Americas, and and that's not only Canada, but you know they they made investments in Ecuador with 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 Lundin Gold, um, and uh, they've got an office in Denver, and uh, you know they're they made a significant you know eight hundred million U.S. commitment into Red Chris. And then Bruce Jack and Pretium acquisition came off the top of that because now they're comfortable in that jurisdiction. Um, and, you know, Red Lake, I believe that was evolution, um, uh, the underground mining. Uh, as soon as they got that, they changed the resource to something that they thought was more achievable. And they bought, um, I don't know, formerly, yeah, which was formerly Rubicon, basically for the plant because they knew that they were going to have higher throughput. And if you got a plant right next door, uh, at a discount, take it. Um, so I, I think some of this is movement, knowing that you know, you know, Western Australia was getting more expensive in terms of acquisitions. Asia was getting a little bit more risky in terms of jurisdiction, and they wanted to keep it at a low risk uh, geopolitical uh, risk uh, jurisdiction. And so Canada seemed uh, like a great place. It was open, uh, and uh, you know, there was not a lot of M and A activity at that point. So they were basically driving it, but but now we see you know uh, um, you know Kinross come in and take out a non-exploring uh, I mean non non-resource well, asset with Great Bear. Let's get onto that in in a moment. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting that you know what you say the Australians wanted to diversify, but uh, they were prepared to accept a new jurisdiction risk, but they weren't necessarily prepared to accept accept development risk at the same time. So they went for assets. Yes, yes. Production. I mean you don't. You want, don't want to do everything because when you want to go there, you want to you, you don't want to understand permitting. You don't want to have to understand, you know, how do we get, you know, because it's a big comparative advantage. Let's just take Red Chris was that uh, Newcrest did underground block caving well, which is something um, Imperial wanted to avoid because they didn't do it at all. So they had a big block caveable mine there, but they were open pit mining because this is what they were more comfortable with. Whereas Red, when, when Newcrest saw this, they saw that they had a comparative advantage of changing the mine plan and going underground quicker because this is where they're more comfortable. And so there was a big comparative advantage for them to take that. And so whenever you look at this M&A, then you know, that's what you wanna see. What, what is the acquirer bringing to the table? Like, how is this going to be accretive to them? And I think technically that that asset was accretive to Newcrest because out of all the other bidders, probably there were very few that could do what Newcrest can do. And that was a very big comparative advantage for them. And it was in Canada, you know. Okay, uh, another sort of recent deal in the past year or two uh, in Canada has been sort of Kirkland Gate, Kirkland Lake Gold buying D2 Lake. Uh, again, another asset that's already uh, built. Um, and then obviously Agnico Eagle buying Kirkland Lake or in the process of buying Kirkland Lake. So again, both de-risked. Um, and you started talking about sort of Kumos Gold buying Great Bear Resources before I sort of cut you off. And I think that's a, an interesting one because um, while as a lot of the transactions have been uh, companies buying 
developed assets. Um, this one is very, very different because, as you mentioned, uh, Great Bear Resources has the pre-resource Dixie project in Red Lake. Um, Kimros is paying, what, 1.4 billion US for that, and it's got all the execution risk ahead of it. Uh, one of the first things it's going to do, it's going to push back the, uh, the, the, the target date for the maiden resource by a year to from early 2022 to presumably early 2023, because it wants to do 200,000 meters of more drilling, infill and extension drilling to, um, I guess, basically find out whether it's there or not. I mean, it seems it's, it's a very different approach. Pre-resource, 40% premium, $1.4 billion bet that there's actually the, the deposits there that it thinks is there. Yeah, I would say like, um, I mean, um, Newmont had bought GT Gold, uh, but that was post-resource but they were probably accelerated with respect to buying that when they probably didn't want to because of some uh, finagling in the background with some, with some other uh, shareholders. Um, but again, that, that, that uh, Saddle North deposit had, uh, had a resource. This is more interesting in that, uh, you know, in terms of the discovery curve, Great Bear was getting to the peak of the discovery curve and they did a management did a brilliant job of, of drilling it, keeping the share structure tight. Uh, over the interim, uh, putting out results and then uh, constant, but but keep pushing back the resource because at that point with that valuation, whatever they put out would probably have disappointed the market, you know, uh, because the market might have thought, oh, it's going to be 10 million ounces at a, you know, whatever, a gram of open pit, you know, look at how much they're going for. Uh, but, you know, maybe they couldn't come up with that number in a resource because they would have to keep the the drilling tighter, which would mean that they would need another 40 or $50 million of drilling, you know, that the exact 200,000 meters that Kinross is, is, is doing to figure out uh, if it works. I'm sure Kinross has a number for all the drilling uh, that's been done to date, and they seem to believe that the continuity exists, that, that they could uh, confirm that with the 200,000 meter. That's the, uh, the bet that they're taking, but I wouldn't call it an execution risk bet. I would call it more of a resource risk bet because there's a contingent payment, uh, small, but, but you know, to say that once we put out um, a feasibility study or a construction decision on eight and a half million ounces of measured and indicated resource, and let's say there's another one and a half million ounces of inferred still sitting there. So let's say it's a 10 million ounce deposit. You know, we're still talking, you know, maybe a hundred, what, 140, 150 million dollars per ounce that there's that they're going to spend. The average, I believe, is probably around 35 to 40 dollars an ounce of resource in terms of evaluation. But this company had no resource at all. So Kinross to come in, play the premium, and then take that resource risk going forward is uh, is something new that we haven't seen. Are we going to see another bid? I don't think so, because I don't see a lot of other companies thinking about taking over this stage of, of, uh, of, a, of a company at, at this kind of valuation and then taking on all that risk uh, going forward. Yeah, and it seems that the, sort of the general zeitgeist has been for the bigger companies to let the juniors continue to advance and de-risk on, on their dollar and get it to a much more advanced stage before they have the, the comfort level of breaking out the checkbook and saying- That was okay. definitely the case with Bruce Jack and Pretium. I mean, the resource was always the question. 
they mined it, they changed management, and then they changed their benchmarks and they changed their guidance. And now they've gotten to a point where, you know, their mine plan is probably more believable. And uh, uh, Newcrest, uh, you know, obviously with uh, their comfort level in British Columbia, they, I don't think there were any other bidders. And that's probably another important facet about it. Uh, you know, uh, saw some synergies and, and, and thought that, the, you know, there was an easy, because they did have a production shortfall. And this, you know, 350, 400,000 ounces from Bruce Jack uh, would have filled it. Okay. Um, and another sort of news item in the past week or so that I think is interesting within the overall context of what we're discussing today, Joe, is that, um, you know, New Gold in some ways seems to have learned from uh, its experience at Rainy River, having just sold a royalty on the development stage Blackwater project it formerly owned to weed, us, weed and precious metals for $300 million US. Um, therefore, trans getting the money today and transferring the execution risk of the building that project on, onto Wheaton. Um, I mean, that seems like perhaps a sensible thing to do, given that how badly it got burnt on project development in the past. Well, I mean, how you fund a project is important, I think. Uh, but uh, the fact, if you have to put a stream, um, I'm not sure, like uh, on your main product or co-product, that suggests that there's there might be a problem with the underlying asset that it couldn't attract, let's say, uh, normal funding. Because any, I think any CEO you would ask for if they were looking at a development project, they would look to raise something like 60, 40, 70, 30 debt to equity. And they wouldn't want to put a stream on on the uh, on the main or co-product, uh, which in this case might be gold or silver, or put a uh, or sell a royalty, you know. Um, but once you have to do that, that's sort of suggesting that you can't get uh, a, a normal debt because there, there's an issue with the asset that uh, they don't want to give you money. But you know, I, I take your point, like uh, just like uh, Rio Two funding uh, their project in in Chile is is. They had no option. There, there was no other lenders willing to give them money and uh, to take that kind of money and you know issue equity at the price that they were trading just didn't make any sense. And then that might be another, uh, uh, another issue for somebody like Newgold that they just don't want to issue equity. Okay, um, now we, we spent a lot of this conversation sort of knocking projects or projects that have had issues, but obviously Canada's got a, a whole host of very successful mines and very successful transactions. Um, some very obvious ones to mention are sort of Canadian Malartic, that was an M&A a few years ago, and Island Gold. They, they've both been very successful for their, uh, their new, uh, the new owners. Um, so how do you see sort of things playing out in the M&A space? Do you think there's going to be, um, you know, presumably more transactions will come? Will they be more of the, the, the type of transactions we've seen the Australians do where they're buying more fully de-risked assets? Or are we going to start to see more transactions like Kimros, where much earlier in the development curve, companies are prepared to take the risk and put their money where their mouth is? Well, I mean, of all, you know, the mega mergers that we've seen and the consolidation in the industry, we, we're, we've got now we've basically got less suitors that we're talking about in terms of being a potential acquirers for, you know, companies or for, for development assets or, or for explorers. So now if you look at it, you got to look at each individual company and say, what are they missing? Do they lack early stage projects? Do they lack development stage projects or do, do they just want to hit the production? Um, right now, I, I see most of the mega mergers being done. 
what I see a lot, maybe some more like Newcrest's acquisition of single asset producers that add, you know, an incremental bit of uh, production at, uh, at low risk and not a lot of uh, financing risk, like it doesn't uh, kill them with respect to being uh, transformational. And so you've, you've got a, a certain tier of companies right now that I would say are this, let's say super seniors, so I don't know, like your Newmont, your Barrick, your, your New Kirkland and, and New Crest. After that, it sort of falls off to these mid-tiers. I think the mid-tiers will continue to be active and they will look uh, probably more so at uh, uh, single asset uh, producers, uh, sort of wait for development. Or, or consolidate with a theme, like, like what Endeavor's been doing in West Africa, consolidating a thematic, like we're going to be you know, in West Africa. It's not like we're gonna be in West Africa and suddenly I'm gonna buy an asset in Argentina. Uh, no, we're gonna stick here because this is what we know what to do. Um, so that kind of thematic works with your investors because they see, like I said about Newcrest with their block caving capacity, you see what Endeavor with their ability to work in West Africa, they know the governments, they know where they can work, they know what they have to deal with. That's the kind of thing you want to do. You, you definitely want to look at any kind of suitor coming into a company, what are they bringing to the party? It's not just funding, it's not just paper, it's like, it's got to be accretive to me. Well, how is it accretive? Well, I know how to block cave or I know how to work West Africa or or whatever. That sort of thing has got to be more and more important uh, as we look at uh, look at M&A. Okay, excellent. Well, I think we're pretty much running out of time, Joe. It's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, wishing you all the best for Christmas and the new year. And it, uh, hopefully we'll have a, a very exciting 2022 with a, a lot more transactions to come. All right. Thanks a lot, Paul. Merry Christmas. <laughs>